Today we are diving into a South Carolina Week in Review where we will investigate the appalling details of how South Carolina funded Scout Motors from the very unusual scandal that hit South Carolina around the same time, the recent action from the SC superintendent, Ellen Weaver, who before this has rarely emerged from her basement, and Governor McMaster's latest promise that he seemed to almost give a gunpoint. Finally, Liam is going to take us through the latest impeachment, shockingly not for Trump this time, but for Biden and the psyop behind it all. So let's get into it. Welcome to the fifth episode of the Magnifying Glass podcast. I'm your host, Elena Moore, and today with me is my co-host, Liam Ford. On last week's episode, we discussed our first deep dive on two hurricanes, both of which had set their targets for the southeast. The scariest, however, is the hurricane of Scout Motors that is taking Blythewood, South Carolina by storm. Today, we will take our magnifying glasses and jump headfirst into the latest happenings in South Carolina. Buckle up, because what I found will floor you. Hey, listeners, quick pause here. I want to give a big shout out to our sponsor, Keith Bailey. Without Keith's support, this episode wouldn't have been possible. If you would like to sponsor a future episode, you can email us or contact us on social media. All right, let's dive back in. So let's go ahead and start with the first one, which is of Scout Motors. Who knew so much could happen within one week? Apparently quite a lot when you were trying to hide the truth. Unfortunately, that, that is difficult to do when you are a stranger taking over a small town. South Carolinians don't take too kindly to that, especially those in Blythewood. So let's first go ahead and talk about the uh, Planning Commission meeting recap that I mentioned in our last episode. And if you haven't listened to it yet, I highly encourage you to because it's going to make a lot more sense when we talk about this. There was a Planning Commission um, meeting that was announced by a sign on September the 3rd. Residents were noticed by that sign that was put in Blythewood about the Blythewood Planning Commission meeting that was set for two days later, September 5th, to annex and rezone almost 500 acres from Richland County to the town of Blythewood. Not only did the town of Blythewood delete comments written by residents off of the live stream of the meeting, but they even removed one of the best parts of the entire meeting, where they get completely owned by one of the residents that won't take the commission's embarrassingly inadequate answers. Answers that do not even address the question that he raised, which was of the FEMA flood zones in the wetlands that Scout Motors is building on and um but they're poorly a poor attempt to distract the speaker the commission had obviously been watching richland economic development department closely and decided to replicate similar to blythewood town council thankfully charles bain who was the resident that they seemed to cut out of that live stream was not playing around and he called a spade a spade so I was at that meeting, took a lot of videos of it, and the public comments that were made by not only Charles, but other residents and even a former mayor. So definitely check out that video that will be linked in the show notes so you can see what they actually wiped from that live stream. 
Thankfully, several residents in Blythewood have raised numerous concerns over the past several months. Scout Motors is being held accountable for now, it seems, for uh, bypassing permitting regulations. The day after this planning commission meeting that was held on September 6, it was announced that Scout Motors building would come to a halt. The um, Just for a little bit of recap, this company started clearing land just days after the General Assembly passed their bill in March for Scout Motors to come in and to receive $400 million in cash and $1.3 billion in, its, in incentives from South Carolina. This news of the halting um, comes less than one day after the residents raised their concerns at the Blyfoot Planning Commission meeting and were disregarded where they were disregarded by most of the board and from Richland County Economic Development. So let's go ahead and look at the work that was halted due to the lack of permits. The state newspaper for South Carolina reported uh, September 8th that um, Scout Motors has paused the work at the Blyfoot site where it would build a $2 billion electric vehicle plant amid ongoing concerns from environmental groups and state and federal agencies. Of course, they said that this is not the ending of the building, but it's simply just um, a pause, an activity, uh, while permitting moves forward. Um, and that was made by Jeff Rubel, the director of the Richland County Economic Development. So this is really interesting that they have been doing all of this work on wetlands without permits, which just happens to be what residents, one of the main things residents have been complaining about this entire time. So that is good news, but let's go ahead and look at a separate, um, another piece of this whole puzzle that I mentioned in our last episode, which was that of the Saddlebrook dilemma. Now, Saddlebrook is a piece of land. It's 290 acres worth of land where a 15-acre pond is located. And it has a very interesting history. The reason it's called the Saddlebrook land is because this company, Saddlebrook Properties, which is a Delaware shell company filed under the name Clifford Thiessen, decided to apply for a South Carolina um, permit uh, to the Secretary of State in December 2nd of 2020. That was approved December 30th of 2020. Now, of course, there was a lot of things that happened with COVID. They didn't seem to make any purchases then. But out of the blue, in August of 2022, Saddlebrook purchased this land, 290 acres, which is now owned by Scout Motors, but they purchased it for four, uh, Saddlebrook purchased it for $4 million in August of 2022. The land was then sold April of 2023 to Richland County. And guess how much it was sold for? Less than a year later, probably about what, eight months, six months? $11.5 million. Now, some of the residents were concerned about this land before it was even sold. Because, as you remember, Scout Motors wasn't announced to move into Blythewood until March, which was around the same time that bill passed through in order to give them so much money in in incentives. 
So within two weeks of announcing Scout, a resident called the Blythewood Town Administrator, Carol Williamson. And Carol said that he told the resident that Scout decided they need just a little bit more property to build out their project. And the land they were looking at was what Saddlebrook owned. So that same resident asked the mayor twice about when he heard about Scout Motors coming. And the mayor of Blythewood, uh, Mayor Franklin, said, well, it was the same time you did. But that seems really hard to imagine. But okay. So then this resident started asking questions about Saddlebrook in this land. Now, at this time, this was in March before the land was sold to Richland County. So the resident was talking to Richland County Economic Developer Director Jeff Rubel, and Jeff Rubel told him that, oh, he represents Saddlebrook personally. So apparently the director is representing Saddlebrook personally, and within just two weeks of that conversation, or around roundabout, within a few weeks of that conversation, the Saddlebrook land was sold to Richland County for $11.5 million. So in April, that land sold for $11.5 million, more than triple or almost triple the amount that it was bought for in August of 2022, which is really interesting. But let's go ahead and move on from that. Um, there's also been a bunch of penny tax signs that have been put up uh, around the road of Blyfoot Road where Scout Motors is building. And it says, oh, this construction is funded by your penny tax. I didn't think that's where that penny tax was going. They've, uh, Blyfoot has done a few penny tax um Penny taxes on the residents, and ha they haven't really seen any work being done. But apparently now it's going to good use because Scout Motors is going to take care of all of your taxpayer money. So this takes me to my favorite point about Scout Motors of this investigation that we've been doing together. And that is where Scout Motors was paid money for all of this. I mean, it was a lot of money. Let's think about it. The state of South Carolina gave Scout Motors not only $1.3 billion in tax incentives, but they also gave them $400 million in cash to use, I guess, to their discretion. Well, actually, in the bill, it said it was funded. All of this money came from the contingency fund. So we decided to do a little digging into that contingency fund. So what is the contingency fund? Well, Governor McMaster on his website said that um, the new executive budget, which was of 2020, a fiscal budget 2020 to 2021, that it places 500 million or 38 cents of every new dollar. So 38 cents of every new dollar that comes into the state it uh, goes into South Carolina's contingency reserve fund so that the state continues to have a rainy day surplus to call on in the event of a virus-related economic hardship continues to impact the Palmetto State. By saving this money instead of spending it, something that has served our state well this year, South Carolina will be prepared for any eventuality. Well, that's interesting. Okay, so the contingency fund, reserve fund, is only supposed to be used for virus-related economic hardship. 
And all of the money that's going into that is 38 cents of every dollar that the government, the South Carolina government, government gets. All right. Keep that in mind. Let's move on. So how much does the contingency reserve fund actually have in it? Well, right now it is um, the state ended fiscal year 2022 with the contingency reserve fund totaling $1.024 billion. All right. So there's over $1 billion in the contingency reserve. The general fund balance was 1.434 billion. All right. So a little bit more than that was the total number. So now let's look into kind of the rules on the contingency, the general reserve fund, which encompasses the contingency reserve fund. It says here that the funds may be withdrawn from the reserve only for the purpose of covering operating deficits of state government. All right. Then it says in the footnotes there that in the event of a year-end operating deficit, so much of the reserve fund as may be necessary must be used to cover the deficit and the amount must be restored to the reserve fund within five physical years out of future revenues until the 5% or the applicable percentage amount minimum of 1% of the general reserve fund revenue of the latest completed fiscal year required to be transferred to the uh, general reserve fund and is again reached and maintained. So if they take the money out of this general reserve fund, it must be replaced and it has to be pulled out to meet a deficit. It has to then be, be replaced within five years. All right. So then we see that this law is now part of the South Carolina constitution and it was amended um, as you can see here on the screen. Now, let's look at the rules of the Contingency Reserve Fund. Now, the Contingency Reserve Fund can be appropriated by the General Assembly upon determination of the Comptroller General. I need you to remember that. So this rainy day fund that was only for virus-related economic hardships and deficits that the state government could not make the only way to actually get approval to use that is if it is appropriated, one, by the General Assembly, so Senate and House has to agree on it, and then it also has to be approved by the Comptroller General. As you can see here, this is a joint resolution where the General Assembly proposes using these funds. Now, what about the Comptroller General? For this, I'm gonna need you to put your tinfoil hat on because it may seem a little crazy, but the more you do research into this, the more it makes sense because it gets really fishy. So South Carolina's Comptroller General was Richard Ekstrom. Ekstrom had held the office of the Comptroller General since 2003. Before that, he served one year at term as South Carolina State Treasurer. Ekstrom was known for putting a stop on countless spending projects that legislators came up with. As you can imagine, he, he was disliked by a large portion of the General Assembly. 
And I have listened to Ekstrom talk a few times, especially within the last two years. And he would often tell the stories of how he would have to put a stop on the General Assembly, because as you can imagine, they like to spend money. Ekstrom often described the General Assembly of having no concept of what a dollar was worth and instead having their eyes only focused on re-election. They didn't care how much money they spent as long it just got as it gave, gave them re-election. As reported by Greenville News, in early February, Richard Ekstrom told the Senate Finance Committee that the state's annual comprehensive financial reports for the past 10 years have overstated how much cash the state had in its coffers. Ekstrom said that this was due to a mapping error that occurred when the state was transitioning from an older accounting system. According to Ekstrom, funds that are given to colleges and universities were, were recorded twice in the financial report because the accounting system did not accurately report the transfer of funds. By 2022, the amount of overstated funds were $3.5 billion, but apparently the error was fixed. But, like a shark, the legislators smelled blood and they pounced on that opportunity immediately. On March 15, 2023, WIS News 10 reported that officials say it calls into questions if Ekstrom can fulfill his duties and if his elected position should even exist. Subcommittee members determined that Ekstrom's actions did not rise to the level of an impeachable offense, but they urged South Carolina's General Assembly to relieve the Comptroller General of the position he had held for two decades, quote, for willful neglect of duty, end quote, as allowed by the state constitution. State Treasurer Curtis Loftus, an elective Republican, said his office could absorb the main responsibilities of the comptroller. So now let's move on to um, a little bit of a timeline of how this happened. So Ekstrom proposed uh, or showed kind of these deficiencies and the mis- uh, this $3.5 billion error or whatever you want to call it in early February. On March 7th, Ekstrom emphasized his competence as a leader who rightfully hired the proper personnel to solve the inconsistencies. On March 2nd, Republican Representative Gil Gatch and Democratic Representative Heather Bauer called for an impeachment inquiry into whether Ekstrom committed serious misconduct, including derelection of duties um, and breach of public trust. Within that same week, Bauer sponsored an amendment to reduce the Comptroller General's newly increased $151,000 salary to $1 during the remainder of Ekstrom's time in office. That amendment passed by a 104 to 7 vote. Ekstrom continued to say that he would not resign, very firmly actually, even as the majority of the General Assembly called for it and even started proposing the idea of the position being appointed by the body of the General Assembly or by the governor. However, that quickly changed. By March 23, 2023, NPR reported that the governor accepted Richard Ekstrom's resignation effective April 30th. The state newspaper reported on May 3rd that in Ekstrom's place, Richard Ekstrom had appointed Ronnie Head, 
a senior deputy comptroller general to run the agency while it waits for the General Assembly to elect a permanent replacement. This didn't last long because the governor's office reported on May 12th, 2023, that Democrat Brian Gaines was appointed by the governor to serve as comptroller general until such time as the General Assembly shall elect a successor or a successor shall otherwise qualify as prescribed by law. WCSC News reported on May 14th, 2023, that lawmakers never held a joint assembly to select a replacement. The move gave McMaster the power to tab the next office holder as soon as the legislative session ended. Gaines committed Friday to carry out the duties until the General Assembly selects someone new or his term ends in 2027. Republican Senator Larry Grooms, who spearheaded the investigation into Richard Ekstrom, called Brian Gaines, quote, an excellent choice, end quote, in a statement. So here's the main question through all of this. This is all happening in the spring of 2023. At the same time, the Scout Motors bill is paid for by the Contingency Reserve Fund. So here's my main question. Did the Scout Motors bill ever get the Comptroller General approval that it needed? Because the Scout Motors bill, which was also referred to as the Workforce Bill in South Carolina, was signed by McMaster on March 20th, 2023, after the bill had passed the General Assembly just the week before, while all of this scandal is happening at the same time. And let me remind you, Richard Ekstrom was notoriously known for pushing back and stopping a lot of the General Assembly's moves to fund extra programs and projects, etc. So let me know your thoughts in the comments. I'd love to hear them. Am I just wearing a tinfoil hat or is something a little fishy here? Because it really seems a little odd for all of this to happen at the same time when you have a comptroller general that has been in office and had no issues since 2003. So let's move on to our next little thing that's going on in South Carolina, which is South Carolina's new superintendent, Ellen Weaver. Ellen Weaver recently emerged from the basement because not only did she not really run much of a primary campaign, I only saw her a few times on the campaign trail, but uh, she won the seat and there has been a lot of controversy over whether or not she uh, was viable for the position. Uh, recently, within the last two weeks, she uh, uh, broke away from the SCASL, which is the South Carolina Association of School Libraries, a relationship that South Carolina education has had with them for over 50 years. Superintendent Ellen Weaver severed ties with the group through a letter because the South Carolina Association of School Libraries sent a letter to the South Carolina school board members quoting a New York school district employee that actively state things such as, quote, districts and boards should probably place more consideration on the emotional well-being of students rather than any att on attempts to pacify parents, end quote. The first letter is from the SEASL's response, and then the second is... Ellen Weaver's response in the third, which is my personal favorite, is the school library's uh, response to Weaver cutting ties from them. You can find all of these letters in the show notes. 
Very soon after uh, Ellen Weaver cut and severed these ties, uh, the South Carolina Association of School Libraries director resigned shortly after, and she did not really cite this severing of ties as her reason for resigning, but I think we can go ahead and connect those dots. Now, this seems a good start for the superintendent, but there are other main issues that she really does need to address, which is the connection of South Carolina schools to the ALA, which is extremely liberal and has been very obviously pushing an indoctrinating agenda. And the second one, the about how schools, libraries, public libraries have been long infiltrated. Palmetto State Watch did an article and an investigation into Aiken County uh, libraries, the public libraries and the librarians response. Palmetto State Watch found several books in the Aiken County Library under the kids section that were extremely inappropriate. And I'm talking about even a dot to dot of genitalia. It was it is disgusting, and we have a slideshow of not only these books that we found, but also the librarian's response when we raised these issues, all within a slideshow that you can also click in the show notes along with the article that will explain it as well. But while we were investigating the issue, the head librarian gave a lengthy presentation detailing how the library procures books for the collection, you know, includes four resources of the library holds on authority for book reviews, which is book list published by the American Library Association, ALA, the Library Journal, School Library Journal, and the Hornbook, Inc. So after this, we were browsing through a couple of the websites that were mentioned, and we found the a little scroll to the bottom of the page confirmed that not only does the library journal, school library journal and the Hornbook Inc. share the same phone number, but they all are under the same parent organization, which is the Vistra group. Upon further investigation, we found that the senior partner, co-chairman and CEO, co-CEO uh, Marty Nesbitt is not only the chair of the Obama foundation, but is also happens to be a close friend of Obama. So tell me, are these journals in fact providing independent reviews or are they publishing books that fit an agenda that serve to further divide families and promote moral decay? I will leave that one up to you and definitely check out the show notes for more information on that. Finally, another big headline that happened in South Carolina is McMaster's speech that he had last week about how he's not going to shut down South Carolina. And he said, oh, just like last time. Well, let me just show you a few articles about how he did shut down South Carolina and put around 6,000 businesses out of business forever because of his shutdown. You can check out the video as well of where he says this right here. Sounds were a mistake. Those, uh, a lot of the information that was presented and the opinions that were presented from official sources were, were in error and caused damage. And I can assure the people of South Carolina that we are not gonna have mandates requiring masks. We're not gonna close down schools. We're not going to do a lot of the foolish things that were done in other states that we limited to a great degree here in South Carolina. Uh, but we'll do that. We have all learned from the pandemic how to 
how important common sense is, and that was abandoned in many parts of the country. Uh, not here. We, we did the right things, but we will not have mask mandates. We're not going to close schools. We've got to do everything that we can to see that our young people get a, a, the best education available. And it's a very interesting video, isn't it? He's very shaky. Almost seems like, well, I won't, I won't say what it seems like to me, but it doesn't sound like the majority of his speeches. But hopefully, maybe he'll actually hold this promise and not break it. I'm not holding my breath because I have seen him break a lot of different promises. But who knows? We can always, you know, turn uh, over a new side of the leaf. But with that, let's go ahead and um, turn over to Liam real quick. I know we've kind of dug a little deep into the South Carolina politics, but now we need to look at the new impeachment of South um, of the st of federal. Yeah, you, you got there. You got there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and and, uh, and I'll try and be uh, quick about it. I know that the you know there's a lot to understand about what's happening in South Carolina, so I'll try and be quick about what's happening on the federal level. Um, it's interesting because for four years, you know, we lived through, uh, you know, impeachment after impeachment or threat of impeachment or an impeachment inquiry into Trump. And so, as you've probably seen in the news this week, Kevin McCarthy just announced that there will be an impeachment inquiry uh, led jointly uh, by James Comer, who's the chairman of the Committee on Oversight, uh, Jim Jordan, who's the Judiciary Committee chairman, uh, and Jason Smith from Ways and Means. And of course, whenever uh, any news like this, any news of an impeachment inquiry, especially before four or five years ago, any news of even an inkling of that on Capitol Hill would send the entire news cycle into a tizzy. But now this is what our third impeachment inquiry in seven years. So, you know, you almost kind of expect one once every other year. Um, so it's maybe lost a little bit, a little bit of its appeal, but it's interesting to see the specifics of this one because it is the first time that Republicans have really taken something that people are calling a political angle uh, into a into an impeachment inquiry. So let's dive down, uh, see what exactly happened, and see is there any like merit to this, or maybe is this just political revenge, as a lot of people on the right especially among the base of Trump supporters, have been calling for. Uh, that's why you've had people like Marjorie Taylor Greene that have been filing articles of impeachment basically since she got into office. It's been one of her favorite go-to moves. So let, let's take a look at that. Um, obviously, the left-wing media has been pretty adamant that there is no evidence whatsoever of any involvement from Joe Biden uh, in Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings, uh, no influence peddling, as they're calling it. Um, but on September 12th, the House Oversight Committee did tweet out, quote, since January, House Republicans have uncovered an overwhelming amount of evidence so showing President Joe Biden lied to the American people about his knowledge and participation in his family's influence peddling schemes. Bank records, suspicious activity reports, emails, texts, and witness testimony all reveal that Biden's, uh, Joe Biden allowed his family to sell the brand around the world to enrich the Biden family. And thanks to two brave IRS whistleblowers, we know that the Justice Department, which has been sitting on much of this evidence, has prevented career investigators from pursuing information that could have led to Joe Biden, end quote. So that's two days ago. And then the following day, 
you had a blog post go up on the House uh, Judici- uh, Oversight Committee excuse me, website detailing 21 pieces of evidence directly linking Joe Biden into the influence peddling scheme, directly proving his knowledge of it and his knowing participation in it. And obviously, I'm not going to go through all 21 pieces now just for the sake of your time, but the link to the entire blog post will be in the description. I really recommend you check it out if you have time or, or you're interested in it. But let's just go through a couple examples just to kind of get an idea of what level this evidence that the uh, House Republicans are alluding to that they have, how solid is it? And again, more of this will come out during an inquiry, um, so I expect that list to grow from 21 pieces of evidence to much more. Uh, But just for one example, according to sworn testimony to Congress, Devin Archer, who is a business associate of Hunter Biden, who also served with Hunter on the board of the Ukrainian gas company Burisma, testified that he was aware of approximately 20 times that Hunter Biden put then-Vice President Joe Biden on speakerphone with Hunter's foreign business associates. And this has been known for quite some time, even two weeks ago or so, Jake Tapper of CNN had a segment in which he conceded that Trump was correct whenever he accused Joe Biden, even back in the debates in 2020, that he was a knowing participant and knowingly profited from Hunter Biden's foreign business dealings. You can take a look at that here. Tesla wrote, Hunter Biden reported nearly 2.4 million in income in 2017 and 2.2 million in income in 2018, most of which came from Chinese or Ukrainian interests. But this, and this directly goes against what Joe Biden said in the debate in 2020 uh, with uh, Donald Trump. Take a listen. My son has not made money in terms of this thing about uh, what are you talking about? China. What you None of that is true. He made a fortune in Ukraine, in China, in Moscow, that is simply and various not other places. True. So it's from two different debates, but I mean, Trump was right. I mean, he did make a fortune from China, and Joe Biden was wrong. So it's interesting because if this is being covered on CNN, you obviously know that there's a little bit more to the story, and it's not it's not just smoke and mirrors. You know that there's some substance there. You know there's some fire there. Another, another piece of evidence that the House Oversight Committee published on their website was Hunter's pitch to investors was access to his father. Quote, in September 2011, while his father was vice president, Hunter wrote an email that his value to Chinese investors was, and this comes directly from the email, has nothing to do with me and everything to do with my last name. End quote. And just for another example, just in case you haven't gotten the picture yet, on July 30th, 2017, Hunter Biden demanded money from Chinese business associates and threatened that Joe Biden was sitting next to him and, quote, if I get a call or text from anyone involved in this other than you, I will make certain that the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction, end quote. It's pretty conclusive. It's pretty, it's pretty damning evidence. And so there's definitely more here than, uh, the Biden, uh, than the Democrats excuse me, had whenever they opened their inquiries into Trump. So it's a little bit disingenuous, to say the least, that you have members of the media, members of the Democratic Party, getting up in front of the American people and saying there's no evidence. This is a completely politically motivated revenge impeachment inquiry. And one of the interesting points that they're making now is that since Kevin McCarthy uh, instigated this inquiry without taking a House vote, that the whole thing's null and void. They don't have to comply with subpoenas. They don't have to cooperate at all with the investigation. But 
Kevin McCarthy is not the first one to do this. And despite the fact that yesterday Nancy Pelosi got up on CNN and said that it was hogwash, her word, not mine. I say that that's hogwash. Hogwash. That uh, Kevin McCarthy was going down this road and, and, and starting this impeachment inquiry without taking a House vote. She did the exact same thing to Trump on October 15th in 2019. Take a listen. As the distinguished chairman said, uh, there's no requirement that we have a vote. And so we, at this time, we will not be having a vote. And I'm very pleased with the thoughtfulness of our caucus in terms of being supportive of the path uh, that we are on in terms of fairness, in terms of seeking the truth, in terms of upholding the Constitution of the United States. How dare you quote me to me? So obviously, Nancy Pelosi, if you didn't already know this, isn't absolutely lying through her teeth on this matter, as she's done on a number of other issues. The problem is that if the media doesn't cover it, if people don't get the word out, then all they're going to see is the media and the Democrats just standing there and feigning righteous indignation that there's a politically motivated revenge impeachment of the Biden family going on. And that, that's all people will know if this doesn't get coverage, which is why it's important uh, to share this information whenever you, whenever you come across it. And part of the problem is that since the media is working so closely with the, uh, the working with the Democratic operative machine, you have people like Chuck Schumer who get up to grandstand and say that the whole impeachment inquiry is just a witch hunt. Take a listen. I think the impeachment inquiry is absurd. The American people want us to do something that will make their lives better, not go off on these chases and uh, witch hunts. And obviously it's not just the leaders in the Senate, but I mean, everybody on Capitol Hill, whenever something like this happens, everybody gets asked, what do you think of this? What are your thoughts? What are your opinions? What are your thoughts? What are your concerns? Even somebody you may have forgot was even in the Senate, John Fetterman. And based on the way that he looks and sounds in this video, I think he might have forgot he was in the Senate too. You'll see what I mean here. This news that uh, Speaker McCarthy has formally launched an impeachment inquiry, has said he's going to Oh my God, really? Oh my gosh, you know, oh, it's devastating. <laughs> Ooh, don't do it. Please don't do it. Oh no, oh no. Kind of scary. Kind of scary that somebody like that who presents themselves in that way, not only in the way that they dress, but in the way that they talk and the way that they answer questions from members of the media, uh, that, that they would present themselves like this. But look. I mean, we all know, you take a look at the evidence, yeah, we, we covered some of it here, we covered some damning evidence here, there's plenty more out there. If you, if you go look on the, the Oversight Committee's website, if you look at the Twitter page, all of this is public record now. All of this is clear to see, but you still have people who are just denying the obvious. And I think that sometimes catches, especially members of the Republican Party and the Freedom Caucus in Congress, a little bit off guard whenever the evidence is so overwhelming, but then whenever they go out and they have a press conference on the issue, they go try and bring more evidence to the American people, and then they get met with a question like this, as uh, Freedom Caucus leader Scott Perry was uh, yesterday, whenever he tried to talk about what was happening with the impeachment inquiry to the American people, he was met with a question like this uh, from a reporter. All right, last question. Yes, ma'am. What actual evidence do you have as opposed to allegations to show to the American public that would merit an actual impeachment inquiry of Joe Biden and prove that today isn't just about some of you. Oh, I don't know. McCarthy 
for the sake of enacting political revenge. Uh, this for the isn't about of Donald political Trump. revenge. We have the bank accounts. We can see, ma'am, you can see that the homes that the Bidens own can't be afforded on a, on a congressional or Senate salary. You also understand that it's not normal for family members to receive millions of dollars from overseas interests. Those things aren't normal. That's not normal to have 20 shell, shell country, companies. These things are not normal, and it alludes to not only just widespread corruption, but money laundering, if not influence peddling itself. And we also have the president, the vice president at the time, on record saying that the prosecutor was fired. Well, son of a bitch, the prosecutor was fired, right? Because the prosecutor was going after the, the company that his son was working on. That's what we have. If you can't see that, if you are, if you are that blunt, look, I'll turn it over to the attorneys. People can't see that. They think it's political revenge. It's because you don't report on it. Again, how can you just sit there and say there's no evidence? The American people don't believe it. He's absolutely correct in saying that it's the reason the American people maybe don't have as much support for the impeachment inquiry as they should or as they would otherwise is because the media is running interference for the Democrats, for the Biden family on this. But even with that, there's still a large portion of the American uh, population that don't like the, the, the way that this country is heading, the, like the direction that it's headed in. Even a latest CNN poll has 70 percent of the American people believe that the country is heading in a bad direction. That's a very high number, even if you don't consider the idea that it's artificially propped up by very favorable coverage from the media uh, to kind of artificially inflate the American people's opinion of those in power, of the way the direction of the economy, of the way the direction of the, like the administration is being run. And so it's disappointing to watch and to see so many people who are clearly at fault. There's clearly plenty of evidence for Hunter Biden's involvement, for Joe Biden's involvement, and for many other people in his administration that, yes, there's absolutely something to this influence peddling scheme. Um, you may not like the way that American politics has moved. You may think that maybe maybe it looks bad. Maybe it's not what the American uh, people want or, or want to see happen to yet another president go through the whole impeachment inquiry again. But look, at the end of the day, there's some validity to this one. There is some facts behind this that say, even if you take politically motivated revenge, and, and yes, I'm sure there's a lot of people in the base that just want blood because you know they went after Trump for four years, completely unjustified, so we should do the exact same thing to them. This isn't about that anymore. We have enough evidence where you don't have to have any personal feelings about this. The facts of the case say, there's something to this, this should be investigated. So we'll see how this inquiry moves forward. We'll see what more evidence comes out. Um, it, it's great to see that the, you know all of them, James Comer, Jim Jordan, and the rest, are all going to be involved in this because of those in Congress. They seem to be doing the best job uh, of researching what the Biden family has done, uh, not only in China, not only in Ukraine, but also in, in places like Russia and, and elsewhere. Um, that they have how they've used Joe Biden's position to sell uh, and make money off of his position and kind of leverage that for favors or threaten people, um, get, get prosecutors fired that are looking into his, hunt, his son Hunter's companies. So we'll see how it goes, see how it moves forward. But again, I, I, I'd encourage people to really take this on the merits because there's something here. And so yes, 100% people should want revenge or people are going to want revenge um, for what happened to Trump for four years. But you don't need to take personal feelings into this. And I'd recommend that you don't, just so that you can have a little bit of a clearer understanding of 
just how bad this looks and how much evidence right now is stacking up against uh, against the Biden family. So we'll see how that progresses. Well, that didn't take long for them to pivot from impeaching one to imp- de- defending the other. Well, you know how a pendulum works. You know, the, far, the farther it swings one direction, the farther it's going to swing back the other direction. And that's kind of the way that American politics seems to be working right now. It is so disgusting. Oh, man. I mean, there. I forgot John Fetterman even existed. I really wish I could have stayed that way. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of Americans feel that way. But we had to see the gym shorts again. Yep. Yep. And I won't even get into the whole uh, the whole conspiracy theory right now that where'd his tattoos go on his arms? I'm not going to say it. You look it up. Do it on your own time. Do it on your own time. Got to think deeply here. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Magnifying Glass podcast. We delve deep, bringing the overlooked into focus and magnifying the stories that matter to you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and share, helping us shine a light on even more discoveries. I'm your host, Elena Moore, and remember, sometimes the smallest details make the biggest difference. Until next time, keep looking closer.